Amen. Let's go Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, that may seem like a weird thing to do, but it, it makes a lot more sense when you realize that, that we, we, we passionately, full-heartedly believe that, that, um, that God uses His Word to, to reveal Himself to His people, to shape us, to change us, to call us to repentance, to encourage us in all of these things. And so uh, we, we, are, we do everything we can around here to try to get people's noses in Bibles. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, uh, take that physical one home and start reading it, and uh, I will call it a massive Massive win. All right, so we're in the middle of a series that we're calling Just and Justifier. Uh, we got the, the, the artwork up on the screen there. It looks all nice. Gary did a great job on it. It's got like a little design theme. Like, um, it's a slow walk through uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, otherwise called the, the Book of Romans, right? Uh, we typically call it the Book of Romans. It's officially called Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Um, outside of a summer break, uh, we took a couple of months off to do some other stuff, but outside of a su- uh, summer break, uh, we've been slowly making our way through the book of Romans since Easter. Uh, I know other churches and other pastors who would take much longer than that. Some of y'all would be shocked by that because like, you feel like this is a long time to spend in a single book of the Bible. Other, I know one guy, a friend of mine, who took way, way, way longer. Uh, and so that's okay. Uh, but when all's said and done, uh, we're going to shut things down again here in a few weeks for like uh, Advent and New Year stuff that we got planned. But when all's said and done, well, this will take us all the way up to the beginning of next summer. Don't you love it when a plan comes together? Man, I do. It's a good day. It's a good day. And now, um, in order to um, wrap our heads around what Paul is doing in Romans, uh, we've been throwing out often the picture or the analogy, the illustration, I guess, of a skyscraper. Sky- skyscrapers are big. They're made up of many parts. Everybody oohs and ahs at them. They kind of define the skyline of a city. You can't just kind of like halfway put together a skyscraper, right? You've got to, there's some planning involved. There's some intentionality in there. Things got to be signed off on and approved of and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so what Paul is doing, the reason why we, we liken Romans to a skyscraper is because it's, it's kind of this logical argument from beginning to end for the global cause of the gospel, the global need of the gospel, and why God is raising up people like Paul and several others to take that gospel to all the peoples, all the nations. Alright? And so Paul is going to build this logical argument, walking piece by piece by piece, establishing his claims as he goes, right? That's how logical arguments work. Each piece builds off of what came before it. A leads to B, which therefore causes C, which necessitates D, right? That's the flow of a logical argument. You don't, you don't build skyscrapers uh, by throwing a bunch of tall stuff together and calling it a skyscraper. You don't get your best fishing pole and your tallest ladder and the flagpole from your neighbors and lean them up teepee style and go, skyscraper, Right? That's a bad skyscraper. Somebody's going to get hurt. But I would have been the kid to climb it. It would have been fun. All right? Here's the deal, though. That's not a skyscraper. Skyscrapers have intentionality. There's a flow of thought. Uh, you've got to dig down deep and set the foundation in the bedrock, right? And so, while everybody may be ooing and eyeing at the pretty antenna on the top, all the engineers in the room know exactly where the real work is going on. They dug down deep. They set the pillars. They poured the foundation. And each piece is necessary in its own way. And if you don't get that early stuff correct, best case scenario is that your building doesn't last very long. 
More likely, though, you won't even get all the way there. That's why Romans is like a skyscraper. Paul is going to slowly but surely work his way up to that pretty antenna on the top. It's going to be glorious. But he sets the foundation early. In the earliest stages of his gospel skyscraper, um, uh, have been all about the global need of the gospel, that all men are sinners uh, are are, that are without excuse. All men are without excuse and therefore are sinners who are justly owed the wrath of God is what we've been talking about throughout the first several chapters of Romans. Forget about what your family tree looks like. Forget about what religious traditions you like to practice. Whatever you've inherited. The gospel begins by saying whether you have access to the law like the Jews did or you don't have access to the law like the Gentiles did all men and by all men he means all men are without excuse all deserve the fair punishment for sin which is what death right but we've also learned early early on that the righteous shall live by faith Paul sets that foundation principle early on. Yes, the wrath of God is owed upon sin and upon sinners, but also there's this central pillar that rises to the top, right? That the righteous shall live by faith. That those who have placed their faith in, and faith is just the biblical word for trust. They're they're synonyms, right? That those who have placed their faith in Jesus are reconciled, brought back together in peace to God. Not because of anything that we could offer God. There's nothing in me that God needs. There's nothing in me that God wants. There's nothing that I have that He lacks. Not one bit. Now the Bible teaches that it's by grace and grace alone that uh, we are reconciled to Jesus, that we are saved. God shows His kindness for us, Paul tells us, in Christ Jesus. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? That's the Gospel. That those who trust Jesus belong to Jesus. They have been forever transferred from team Adam to team Jesus. They have died to their old sinful selves by being united with Jesus in His death on the cross and they are raised to resurrection life, newness of life by being united with Jesus in His resurrection life, right? And last week, last week we learned that that we will always ultimately be enslaved to something because you will always be enslaved to whatever it is you ultimately submit yourself to. By definition, you are a slave to what you submit yourself to. It doesn't matter if that slavery is forced upon you or you walk into it willingly. But you will obviously ultimately be enslaved to something. And so last week um, we, we heard though that the gospel is that we are set free from our old slave master, our old sinfulness, but we are rescued to a new slave master. We are rescued to a better kind of slavery under a far greater master, the good, wise, creator king. See, the issue is not slavery, it's the quality of the slave master that matters. And so we've been transferred from one that would harm us to one that wants our joy. But this was last week. You ready to see what Paul has for us this morning? Look at verse 1 with me. We're going to look at verse 1 and then we're going to stop for a second. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, 
that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And there's a question mark there. Okay, so um, we talked on and off throughout the series about the law, right? That, that God's commands. Uh, Paul has said it other times throughout the course of this letter uh, that the main purpose of the law was to reveal the indwelling rebellion that already existed in our hearts. That was the purpose of the law. There's other lesser purposes of the law, but the purpose of the law was to reveal that our hearts were rebellious towards Him and that needed to be shown, that needed to be revealed or manifested, right? Uh, and so um, Paul has said it other times that throughout this letter, the main purpose of the law was to reveal the indwelling indwelling rebellion that already existed in our hearts, that rebellion existed in us before there were ever rules to be disobeyed. That's his point. But that means, though, however, that when the law came, that our sin went from internal rebellion to outright transgression. Because we now actually have rules that can be broken. We have the opportunity for rebellious hearts to willingly break those rules. Right? There's a difference between a spirit of rebellion and a willful act across a line, right? And so the heinousness of our sin, Paul argues earlier on, is actually elevated by the law, increased or manifested by the law. Sin abounds, he says at one point, right? It grows. But here in chapter 7... Here in chapter 7, Paul introduces another layer of logic concerning the law. He says that the law is only binding as long as someone is alive. Okay. Dead people aren't expected to follow the law anymore. Can we go home now? Pack it up and, and leave? Being in Nashua gives us a lot of opportunities to, to notice the difference between laws on different sides of the state line, right? Like it, you go just a couple miles south and things change really, really quick legally. All right? Like, I, I got a pocket knife in my pocket. Cause issues <laughs> over there. The difference between the live free or die state and Taxachusetts is sometimes incredibly massive at times, right? Oh, some of you are like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of you live there, and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, when, when, when I was first moving up here uh, a few years ago, uh, three years ago, I think, um, my father-in-law was helping me drive the U-Haul up. Um, and so with him sitting in the passenger seat of that U-Haul truck, I remember the exact moment that he realized that you don't have to wear a seatbelt in the state of New Hampshire. You know how I remember? He, uh, he took that sucker right off, man. It was a glorious moment for him. Absolutely glorious moment. Because like, like he, he, the moment he realized that he was no longer bound by the obtrusive laws of lesser states, he was done with it. He was free and he acted on that freedom. One of the biggest grins I've ever seen on his face. And as the son-in-law, I don't see a lot of those grins. right? But like it was a big old grin. Until the, the seatbelt alarm in the car wouldn't shut up. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. All the way down that road. So what do you think he did? Nope. He shoved that sucker behind him and buckled it in. <laughs> you can't pin that stallion, man. When, when someone dies, it, it doesn't matter what laws are on the books. They have crossed over into a new, new jurisdiction, right? Those, those old laws don't have any more binding on them. That person is free. 
Paul says that the old covenant, the, 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 the way of accessing God through perfect obedience to the law has no more binding on those who are dead to it. And just like in weeks past, just like in weeks past, Paul has an incredibly common sense statement to illustrate his point. Look at verse 2 with me. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So Paul's incredibly common sense illustration doesn't feel so common sense anymore, does it? Isn't this a point of contention in our culture? In fact, it's probably a point of argument for a lot of people. You know how I know? Because I will likely get an angry email this week. Especially if I do anything other than slough it off and dismiss it as some antiquated thing of a bygone era. We don't talk about it much, but this is one of the most contentious issues in our culture. We don't talk about it much because, by and large, the church has pretty much lost its portion of the culture war. Can I just lay all of our cards as a church on the table, though? Say something that ought to not be controversial? God's design for marriage assumes permanency. If it, if it isn't per permanent, then can we all agree that something went wrong somewhere? Something fell apart that shouldn't have fallen apart. Oh, but Stephen, there, there are allowances for divorce in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, there are. There's, there's at least a couple that we can point to that are crystal clear. There's a third one that we think is implied, but there's a little bit of debate about it. But listen, they're called allowances because they're not the norm, right? And just looking at the statistics of how divorce works in our country, most people aren't operating under those allowances. Not even close, actually. The concept of no-fault divorce is a modern invention. It came out, it started in California and became a national thing in the 80s. Like, like several millennia of human history before that just pops onto the scene. And I'm of the opinion that it's caused all kinds of damage. Um, multiple generations, especially my generation down. Um, the statistics tell us that young people are waiting later and later and later in life, if ever at all, to get married. And we used to think, just kind of naturally assume, that that was because the culture around us was growing more promiscuous. And, like, who wants to argue against that, right? Obviously, just watch TV for a while. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's definitely going on. But the more we've looked into this, the more we've researched this trend, the more we've learned that, that there are a lot of young people who are avoiding marriage for no other reason but the fact that they watch their parents fail and they want nothing to do with it. They have learned by nature, or by, by nurture, sorry, that everything can fall apart no matter how hard they try. Now, can, can we all agree, be on the same page, that something went wrong somewhere if that's the reality that we're living in? Can God redeem broken homes? Absolutely, yes. 100% yes. And we should celebrate those stories when they do. We should point out and say, look what God has done. We should celebrate those stories. But at the same time, like we seem to have found ourselves all of a sudden in a situation living in a world where 
it's become so normal that everybody's worried I'm going to say something that's going to offend somebody by just saying what the Bible said. I haven't even explained what Paul said yet. I just read it. We live in a world where the pastor's got to couch his language a little bit, right? Maybe that's the more tragic reality. Paul is so convinced here that this illustration will make sense to the Roman church that he sees nothing of it to just throw it out there for an illustration of a completely different point. And it is a completely different point. So, so can, I, can I go down a rabbit trail for a second? Like, normally when we're in here, we, we try to focus our attention on the, the main push of the text. We don't want to go off onto rabbit trails because we have an agenda on something here, agenda on something there. Whatever the main emphasis of the text is, that's what we want to focus our attention on. That's what we want to chase after learning and understanding. But listen, you can't throw grenades out into the culture and expect it not to affect anything. So, so can I have a little leeway for a second? So what if this is your story? What if you're reading Romans 7 this morning and you feel like you just got sideswiped by something? What do we do? Well, you do the same thing that any follower of Jesus does whenever the Bible calls something out in their life. Whenever the Bible, and it should be often, calls out sin, you repent. You repent. You, you repent to to God, you repent to your spouse, you repent maybe even to those that your sin directly affects. If appropriate and where possible, and yeah, that's not everybody's circumstances, but if appropriate and where possible, you, you put forth effort to prevent future sin. If you're able to. And then after that, well then after that, you, you lean into the God who knew every one of your sins before He went to the cross. There's not a single sin in your life, including that one, that he did not already know about and willingly pay for with joy. That was his aim. He laid down his life for that sin too. But we need to be careful here because it is sin. The second we start talking about redeemed things as less than sin, they no longer need redemption. It's a redeemed thing. And so we repent, we fix where we are able to, and then we let Jesus cover the rest. That's the game. Are there situations that, in each case that require prayerful wisdom? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Are there circumstances or realities that complicate this uh, beyond our ability to speak to every single person's scenario, every single person's context this morning? A thousand times, yes. But make no mistake, the reason, the reason that I have to spend any second at all explaining a common sense illustration this morning is because we live in a world that has done everything it can to make sin, disobedience to God somehow less heinous, less damning, and even more tragic, something worthy of celebration, right? Is this the only sin this, our world does this to? Not even close. But it's definitely one of them. And it happens to be the one staring us in the face in Romans 7, so we had to deal with it. Welcome to a post-Genesis 3 world. The culture around you is going to lie to you. You will be told that bad things are good and good things are bad 
all the time. You will be deceived by those who are trying to deceive and you will be deceived by those who have been deceived already. The snowball rolls on. It's the world we live in. And so if this is your story, if this is your story, if the church is healthy, it must, it must be the place that simultaneously calls sin exactly what it is and calls you to find full and complete forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Right? Otherwise, we're not a healthy church anymore. We're something else. That's a rabbit trail. That's your story. You can give me a call later and we can sit down and talk, but... God's given us a text in Romans 7 that we need to refocus our attention on, right? So, now that we understand Paul's illustration, now that we know that, that being dead to the law means being freed from the law, what exactly is Paul saying? Well, in verse 1, what does he say? He's, who's he talking to in verse 1? Or do you not know, brothers? And it's got the little M dash. What does it say next? For I'm speaking to those who know the what? The law. So who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews or, or the, the Jewish culture Christians. We could be more specific, right? Um, we brought it up a couple of times in this series so far that, that one of the outside influences on Paul's logical argument, this, this, he's building this masterpiece logical argument for the gospel, but he's got this one outside influence that he's got to weave into his work, right? And skyscrapers don't have to be completely utilitarian. They can have some fancy design to it. So he's got this one thing that he's weaving in and out of the argument. It's this conflict, the resolution of this conflict between Jewish culture Christians and Gentile culture Christians and this culture clash that they have. All right? So they've got all this animosity built up between those who bring their tradition with them like baggage and those who had no tradition at all to speak of. Right? And so he's going to weave this little uh, thing in here. And so Paul kind of pulls the Jews to the side for a second and has a little quick word with them. That's what's going on in this text. Now we think, we think that Paul wrote Romans in about 57 AD. So why is that important? Well, because it's at the very height of what we would call Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism. Uh, Second Temple because it, it, it occurs between the time period of the uh, return from the exile in Babylon where they rebuild the temple and then the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD under the attack of Titus. Right? That's the time period. And so the bookends of Second Temple Judaism are, is the rebuilding of the temple and the destruction of the temple. The Second Temple. Because religious people are naming things, right? That's how we get the name. Second Temple Judaism. So if you don't know much about Old Testament history, uh, the reason why the Jews are in Babylon or having to return from Babylon right before this time period uh, in the first place is because they were disobedient to God, right? That's the, the nutshell way of putting it. They were disobedient to God. And so uh, upon coming back from uh, upon coming back from this post-exilic period, uh, coming back from Babylon, there's this really renewed sense of, hey guys, let's do it better this time. Because we don't want to do that again, right? Like that was bad. God put them on a little 70-year time out in slavery and off in Babylon for a while. They don't want to go down that road again. So they're like, hey guys, we should do better this time. Seems like a legit argument. And so upon coming back from Babylon the religious actions of the Jewish people just go into overdrive during this time period. Uh, their hearts were, were still far from God. The, the post-exilic uh, prophets that we have in the Old Testament make this abundantly clear. They're, they were doing all this religious stuff, but their hearts were still far from God. And, and religious actions void of the heart don't get you anywhere. But man, did they look put together. They, they rebuild the temple. They've got all this other stuff. Uh, this is the time period that the synagogues pop up. 
these little places scattered around. Uh, you see Jesus in, in the gospel accounts going to the synagogue where they open the scroll and they read and all that kind of stuff. Right, the synagogues were this place uh, that, that just kind of popped up during this time. The temple was the one place that a Jewish person could make the sacrifice for sin. But what if, and just hear me out, like we had a bunch of little places scattered around in the countryside where they could open up God's word and discuss it. Like, wouldn't that be fun? What a great idea. We should do something like that too. And so the synagogues pop up during this time period. And so, building off of that, the biggest thing to come out of Second Temple Judaism uh, was the recommitment, or at least the public recommitment, to read and study and apply God's Word. The rabbinical tradition, the rabbis uh, began uh, popping up during this time period. Teachers or, or rabbis would uh, would travel around interpreting the Torah. They'd, they'd gather up a following of disciples who would take up their yoke or their teachings and pass it down the line. All right? And so, like, if you're putting the pieces together, when, when Jesus, a rabbi, says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's not talking about farm equipment. He's not talking about what you need to pull a plow. He's talking about his public teachings. He's talking about what it means to be his disciple. And so the rabbis begin popping up during this time period. The Midrash and the Mishnah, which those are words that some of you are like, are those real words? Yes, those are sermons and commentaries on the Torah that popped up during this time because everybody's passionate about the law now, right? And so they begin thinking through these things and trying to apply these things and trying to teach these things during this time period. That all pops up during Second Temple Judaism. Right? The, the public persona of faithfulness, of religiosity, is highly elevated during this time period. On top of that, you've got the cultural and political flux of, uh, of, of where the Jews live. It's just, just chaos right now. Uh, you have the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire, which means the rise of the Greeks with Alexander the Great. And then that doesn't last very long because he doesn't have any heirs. And so after that, you get the rise of Rome. Right? And so the political realities and the cultural realities surrounding God's people during this time period is just all over the place. And as Hellenism, Greek thought and Greek culture, begins to creep into the Jewish world. Everybody with this renewed sense of, we've got to protect God's Word, holds up God's Word and says, we've got to protect God's Word. They double down on it. They double down. There's those who love God's Word and who at least publicly say that we revolve our lives around its teaching. Don't you, don't you empathize with them a little bit? As we watch the culture that we live in slowly creep further and further into unbiblical thought and unbiblical worldviews, don't you at least kind of empathize with the, the Jews during Second Temple Judaism? Hold up God's Word and say, we got to protect this. So what's the difference between us and them? Well, I think the answer is the weight that we put on the law to save us. We're in the same boat with the Jews when we say that God's Word is good and that it's given to us for our good. We, we 100% agree with that. So the Jewish person can stand up here and say, God's Word is given to us for our good. It is good. And we say, absolutely, yes, amen. Right? We're in the same boat. We champion the same things with the Jewish person when we say that it has been given to us so that we, to, so that we can know how to live in a way that's pleasing to God. Like We can put a Jewish person on the stage. We're not going to do that. But if we did and they said that, we'd be like, yes, sir, absolutely. Woo, I agree. But there's a gigantic difference between the two of us because the Jewish person 
Paul was writing to in Romans still clung desperately to the hope that their power to bridge the gap between themselves and God was fully dependent upon how obedient they were to that law. That's the difference. That if they were going to draw near to God, it was going to be because they and they alone finally succeeded in fulfilling it. They held up God's law and trusted it for salvation rather than the God it pointed to and had blessed them with it. That's the difference between us. And speaking to those Jewish background Christians, those he just argued had died to their old selves and their sinfulness, those who had died to their old slave master and had been forever united to a better one, Paul says that they have also, also died to the law. They've died to the law. They're not married to it anymore. One of the spouses is dead. No longer has any legal binding on them. You were bound to it as long as you lived under the old covenant of law keeping, but just like the ending of marriage and death, you're free now to be married to another. That's his point. So look at verse 4 with me. Likewise, or in the same way, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Alright, so those of you who have been here for a while already know my favorite two-word phrase in the Bible is the phrase, so that, right? It's a hinge in the middle of a sentence. If you see the phrase, the two-word phrase, so that, in the middle of a sentence, it's a hinge for something. No matter how great and how amazing and how wonderful the first thing is, if it comes before the phrase, so that, it's a means to a greater end. It is the stage upon which the far greater blessing, far greater reality sits upon. It is the cause that led to a much better, much more desired effect. And so here we see the phrase, so that in the middle of the sentence, don't we? What does he say? Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law. So you died to the law through the body of Christ, but that dying to the law served a greater purpose. And what is that purpose? That you may belong to what? Another. You belong to Another, Paul says here that, the, that our dying to the law, your dying to the law served an even greater purpose. It was accomplished so that something greater could come true, that we would be united forever to another, he says. Now, I love the phrase, so that, but it's not the end of the sentence, is it? There's another weird little hinge. Did you catch it? So what does it say? Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that, awesome, great, we love that phrase, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, comma, in order that. We just turned the volume up to 11, guys. Yeah! We got to so that and in order to. In order to what? Transfer to a better spouse. That transfer to a better spouse serves a much grander purpose as well. What's the better purpose? we would bear fruit for God. That transfer to a much better spouse serves a far more grand purpose. That we bear fruit for God. So what in the world does that mean? You're great. I like fruit. Fruit's great. I'm going to go apple picking later this week. My parents are in town. Fruit's awesome. What is Paul talking about? Look at verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, the flesh is just the Bible's way of talking about our old sinful selves. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members, our bodies, the things that make us ourselves up. Uh, so I'll read over again. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for what? Oh, that's a less appealing kind of fruit. So Paul says that we have died to our sin, that before we died to our sin, excuse me, that our, our core level rebellion in our hearts saw God's law as an opportunity to step out in willful defiance. We talked about that before. That our internal rebellion took, took it as an invitation even to willfully transgress God's law. It saw God's law, it licked its lips, and it went after it in spite. It was aroused by it, he says. But what happened when we did that? What was our result? Paul says that we bore fruit for death. And like a snowball running down the hill, it continued to produce more and more and more death. Paul's language here carries, carries a really dark tone, right? But a dark tone is actually necessary because the separation that exists between sinful man and a holy God is insanely large. Infinitely is probably a better word. We don't tend to think of ourselves in these categories. We like to think, we like to think of ourselves in the best possible terms, right? And so we, we look around the room, we find the worst examples of humanity, and we go, God must be pleased with me. We always look downstream instead of upstream. I mean, sure, I've got, I've got some stuff I'm not proud of. Who doesn't? But, like, have you seen my jerk of a neighbor? That guy. If anybody deserves hell, it's Jim. Not that Jim. Different Jim. And so we compare ourselves by our picking to the worst example we can, at least we can think of. And so we watch our preferred news source. And we lament the terrible state of our culture and we gather all the people that look like us and think like us and we laugh and scoff as we point at all of that other team that's ruined in this place, right? And each and every second of the day, just count them off. Each and every second of the day, we go about our business building our own little kingdoms, our own little me-centered empires, all the while ignoring the praise and the adoration that is owed to the actual king of the cosmos. We have the audacity to shake our fists and curse the heavens anytime something doesn't line up exactly how we would prefer it to, even though every single breath you have ever taken was by the mere word and will of the one who created it. Every oxygen molecule that has ever entered your lungs was by His hand. The divide between God and pathetic little wannabe gods is far bigger than we like to admit out loud. And as Paul has argued over and over and over again throughout this series, the only thing that a perfectly just God ought to do in this moment is to pour out His righteous indignation, His wrath upon sinners. That's what a perfectly just God should do. Dark language is necessary because our sin bears the fruit of death, He says. 
But we've also spent the last six weeks, the last few weeks, sorry, celebrating a glorious three-letter word, right? What was that word? But. It's the best three-letter word in the Bible. But. Hey, guys, guess what verse 6 starts with? It's almost like God's good to us. Verse 6, but. I know things look bleak. I know things look harsh. I know things, it seems like all hope is lost, but. Woo, how good is that but? You know that the reality of what we deserve is tragic. But. What does verse 6 say? But now. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. All right, so speaking to Christians, speaking to those who have placed their faith and their trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross to pay the debt of the sin that they owe. Right? Speaking to Christians here, Paul says, your old sinful flesh, your old sinful self produced deadly fruit. It deserved the wrath of God, but now something has changed. Because you have been transferred from team Adam to team Jesus. Because you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. You have been set free from the requirements of the law. It has no more, not a single one, legal demand upon you. You're free. Why? Because you were united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection life. Christ has satisfied the law fully forever satisfied the law by fulfilling the requirement on your behalf. His sinless life was lived for a purpose. Unlike Adam who let us down, that jerk in the garden who couldn't make it work, although I probably wouldn't have done a lot better. Unlike Adam who let us down in the garden, Jesus carried the responsibility to stand before God in perfect righteousness for His people. He carried the torch Faithfully, He died as a sinless, perfectly sinless substitute in order to reconcile us to the Father. Yes, the law is good. Yes, the law has been given to us to know God and to teach us how to, who He is. Yes, the law has been given to us to show us how to live in a way that is pleasing to our holy God. But the very second that you get honest about yourself is the exact moment, the very moment that you realize that fulfillment to the law is a burden that you can never, ever, and I mean ever, achieve on your own. Without new hearts that long by faith to please God, we can't fulfill the law. We won't fulfill the law. But God is good because there's a but. But. Having died to that which held us captive, we can now serve in the new way of the Spirit, he says. We don't have access to God through obedience to a written code. Our access is purchased for us by the One who was obedient on our behalf. Our Advocate, Jesus Christ the Righteous, who now stands as a representative before the throne and who gives us His Spirit to live in us, sanctifying us, cleansing us, creating us anew uh, for His good purposes and for His greater glory. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to God's Word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're 
a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today. And I think you do that by repenting of sin and leaning into who God declares himself to be in Romans 7, right? The infinitely better spouse. The one who rescued you out of captivity to a law that you were never supposed to live up to, let alone got even close to trying. The one who writes his good commands on your new heart and patiently leads you in following him. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll have some leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. But listen, God doesn't have you here on accident. I think He would call you to respond to His Word too and you do that by meeting Jesus. You do that by meeting Jesus. You repent of your sin and you call on Him in faith, in trust this morning. Uh, trust is in His finished work on the cross to pay the debt of sin that you owe. Your account is overflowing and full. You need a Savior. And so if you will trust Him this morning and follow Him as Lord, He is pleased to be that Savior. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. If you want somebody to walk you through what that next step looks like, I'll be down front here too. But let's all respond to God's Word this morning however He's calling you to. Father, thank You for the Bible. Thank You for Romans 7. Pieces that are easy to celebrate and some that probably caught us off guard this morning. But Your Word is good. Your Word is given to us for our good. You know us inside and out and You knew what we needed to hear this morning. That's no accident. So God, may everyone in here, myself foremost, submit ourselves to, to Your Word this morning. For those in here who, who know You, would You call us to repentance, but also... Call us to rest. We don't work to achieve nearness to You. You came near. Our sin was a burden too hard to bear. And so You came and dealt with it Yourself. Our sin is real. And it ravages everything around us. But You are the one who brings redemption. You are the one who calls us to Yourself as You carry the load that's too heavy for us. So God, would, would those in here who know You fall deeper in love with the God who saves today? Would we see a little more clearly this morning the great love with which You loved us before we could love You in return, before we had anything to offer to You, You loved first. You gave us Yourself. God, for those in here who don't know You yet, would You make Yourself known to them this morning? Through the act of hearing Your Word and singing a song of response with people in this moment come to know You for the very first time forever changed by Your amazing love, by Your grace. And help us respond to Your Word faithfully. In Jesus' name, Amen.